man in his middle years was on a Caribbean cruise. He was a single man and kind of had his eyes open. He, uh, on the first day, he passed by this attractive woman about his age who smiled at him in a friendly way as he passed her on the deck. And that night, he saw her in the dining room and he made plans to go sit with her for dinner. Well, the conversation developed, and as it did, he commented that he had seen her on that deck and had appreciated her friendly smile. And she smiled again when she heard this and commented, well, the reason that I smiled was that when I saw you, I was immediately struck by your strong resemblance to my third husband. <laughs> and at this, he perked up his ears and he said, oh, how many times have you been married? And she smiled again demurely and said, twice. <laughs> the woman had plans. One couple in this congregation has admitted to how one of you likes to plan out every aspect of a vacation while the other would simply prefer to get in the car and just drive till you want to stop. As in today's scripture, two people have plans that involve the same destination, but the routes they take couldn't be more different. A little background will help us better understand and apply today's passage. In the first verse, Jesus gets word from the Pharisees, who were religious leaders for the Jews of that day, that Herod plans to have Jesus killed. Now, this ruler is Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great. If we remember the birth story, or soon thereafter in Matthew, Herod the Great wants this new potential Jewish king killed, and so he has all the babies in the area killed. Well, luckily, Jesus and his family escaped. So that was King Herod the Great. This is his son, who's one of the rulers, and um, he's no better. <laughs> This Herod, Herod Atipus, has stolen his brother's wife. You may remember that John the Baptist had rebuked him for stealing his brother's wife, had been imprisoned because of that, and then eventually Herod had him beheaded. So like most mob bosses portrayed on film, when Herod wanted someone killed, he could make it happen. Well... How much have we progressed? We no longer have corrupt leaders like Herod, do we? Okay, I'm glad some of you recognize that sarcasm. We have plenty of corrupt leaders in today's world. As babies, we all start out early learning to manipulate. You know, we learn which cries will elicit the proper response from those who are caring for us. And then, as we age, we learn that if we ask politely and use the word please, that we'll often get what we want. And then, as we get even older, we learn other ways to manipulate people into giving us what we want. People move into leadership for good reasons often, I think, but they want to see good changes. But then there's the system, the system that is so hard to change. Years ago, I worked as an aide during the General Assembly for a delegate, and I was um, 
in this delegate's office probably asking for signatures or something, and my naive ears were shocked to hear two delegates trading votes. I'll vote for your bill about X if you vote, you'll vote for mine about Y. A couple of questions and answers were passed back and forth, and it was a done deal. The system is at work. Now, Jesus knew the governmental system of his day and that Herod had the power to plan and execute someone. But Jesus also had plans. Now, these Pharisees that came to him were not sure whether they were coming on friendly terms or because perhaps they agreed with Herod. But Jesus says to them in his response, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I finish my work. Yet today and tomorrow and the next day, I must be on my way. Because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed away from Jerusalem. Jesus knew the system. And he knew how leadership gets comfortable and it becomes hard to change. He knew that people, prophets, had spoken out against the system and had been killed for it. But he also knew there was a greater plan at work, a plan for salvation and redemption. Poor Herod had no idea that his plan was going to be co-opted by a ruler who was much more powerful than he. A man with a nagging secret couldn't keep it any longer. He went to the confessional and admitted to the priest that for years he had been stealing building supplies from the lumberyard where he worked. His parish priest said, what did you take? And the man responded, enough to build my own home and enough for my son's house and houses for our two daughters and our cottage at the lake. This is very serious, the priest said. I have to think of a far-reaching penance for you. Have you ever done a retreat? And the man said, no, Father, I haven't, but if you can get the plans, I can get the lumber. (laughs) We have the priest and the builder, and we have Herod and Jesus, both with different understandings of what needed to be accomplished. While Jesus had plans for himself, he also had plans, or at least wishes, for Jerusalem. We, I think, today, 2010, we can't comprehend exactly what the Jews felt about Jerusalem. Jerusalem and the temple, that's where God dwelled. We have this understanding today. We know that God's here, but we also know that God is there everywhere around us, in our city, in our neighborhoods, in our state, in the country, in the universe. God is everywhere. We don't need one place to worship God and, or to have a, a religious hierarchy as they did in Jerusalem. But for them, Jerusalem was the center of their solar system. And like light emanating from our sun, if good things happened in Jerusalem, the goodness would emanate to the Jews in outlying areas. Likewise, 
when leadership in Jerusalem was corrupt, the darkness was felt for miles. And so we have Jesus' lament. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus sensed the darkness, sensed the wish for security and wholeness and hope, and yet the people were unwilling to change. Herod, the fox, is in the hen house. And Jesus, the hen in his image, cannot protect her children because they run away from her. Jesus wants to save their lives, but the the fox wreaks havoc and he kills them. He kills the spirit of the people there. And while Jesus seems to accept wholeheartedly the plan for his death in Jerusalem... He laments that his plans for Jerusalem would not come to fruition. Jesus does what he can to tell them about life, but he has no control over what they choose. They choose to run. They choose death. And then the next statement is somewhat chilling. See? Your house is left to you. Your house is left to you. It's as if Jesus is washing his hands of them. He gave them the opportunity to follow him, and they said no. That statement can easily be carried over to our churches today. When we get focused on the wrong things and forget to look toward Jesus, why would he stick around? Consider this composite letter to the Annie's mailbox column. Dear Annie, my boyfriend and I have been dating for five years. I want to get married, and we used to talk about setting a date, but now he doesn't like me bringing it up. Am I just wasting my time? And sometimes I kind of wonder what the folks who write this column are thinking when they read these, and they think, well, duh, you know. (laughs) Of course, we say that Jesus has, I mean, that Elvis has left the building and the boyfriend has left the relationship. When we stop connecting with Jesus, what use does he have to stay in relationship to us? Forget it, he says. Your house is left to you because obviously I'm not welcome anymore. Some of you will remember the story in chapter 14 of Matthew's gospel when Jesus is walking on the sea towards the boat in which the disciples are. And when they see him, when Peter sees him, he said, Lord, make me come to you. And Jesus says, come. And so Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on the water towards Jesus until he looks away. He sees the storm around him, and he begins to sink. And that's such a metaphor for me about what happens when we take our eyes off Jesus. We plan to walk with Jesus to Jerusalem. 
We know that we will experience hardship just like he did. We know that we will have ups and we will have downs. And yet we also know what's at the end. Because from our perspective in 2010, we know that Easter is coming. We know that Jesus doesn't leave it at your house is left to you. That Jesus doesn't dispel us, doesn't push us away as we push Jesus away. He always comes back to life when we reach for him. And so Lent is important because it helps us make plans to energize our relationship with God through Jesus. Gordon MacDonald tells a story of when he first ran track in prep school. His coach invited him over for dinner one night. And after the meal, his coach pulled out a notebook. And it had Gordon MacDonald's name on the front cover. And instead of turning right to the front page, he turned to the back page. And on that, it had June 1957, which at that time was three and a half years in the future. And the coach said, Gordon, these are the races I'm going to schedule you to run almost four years from now. Here are the times you will achieve. And McDonald looked at those times and he thought, impossible. They were light years away from where he was as a runner at that moment. But then the coach began turning back the pages, page by page, showing the 42 months that he had scheduled for workouts. And these were the graduated, accelerated plans for increasing his skill on the track as the months and years would go by. That coach had a sense of direction and a sense of development when it came to McDonald's athletic growth. Coaches and leaders of all kinds understand the absolute necessity of this kind of strategic, long-range planning. So I think one question we can take away from this scripture today, one challenge that it offers to us is, do we have a plan for our spiritual lives? Do you have a place where you want to be in three and a half years? Or in 10 years or in 20? Or by Easter? Gradually, inevitably, if we make plans... Through the years, we become more like Jesus. So what plans do you think God would have for you? One thing I like about Lent is it's okay to start small. Um, You know, one of our friends gives up cussing for Lent. Other people give up sweets for Lent because they find out that that's a craving for them. And they want to crave God instead. So when they, when they have that sweet tooth, they think, oh, I'm supposed to be craving God, not chocolate, whatever it would be. When Michigan State basketball coach Judd Heath, Heathcote announced his retirement, he was asked about his future plans. And he said, I'm going to finish my book. And when a friend said, I didn't know you were writing a book, He said, I'm not. I'm reading one. (laughs) 
it can be just a little thing that we do. We could read straight through one of the Gospels during Lent, or we could read a psalm a day, or just today in our Sunday school class, our um, suggestion was to read a chapter out of Proverbs each day for a week. If we commit one more minute to prayer than we have done before, then we are on our way towards being closer to Jesus than we ever have in the past. So you get a moment of silence. I'm going to shut up and let God speak to you where you can make your own plans with God. Consider what would help you move a step closer to God than you were. Despite the plans the world has for us, great things await the ones who seek God with all our hearts. So take a moment and seek God. Let's pray. Hear our prayers, O God, for wisdom and for guidance. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the one we follow to Jerusalem and beyond. Amen.